to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Mini Sports, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley-Davidson's, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. Nick Gale is an award-winning custom bike builder, a mate of mine. His workshop, very close to the iconic Ace Cafe on the North Circular, where the sort of ton-up cafe racer culture was born. He himself built all kinds of different bikes. His first scratch-built custom bike was Ferrari-themed, and instead of getting him into trouble with Ferrari, it was bought by Jean Top for Michael Schumacher. My guest this week is Nick Gale. What was the first? What was the first thing that you? It was probably a bicycle, like it was with me. But you, you had your bike, and you thought, right, I'm going to make this look better, or I'm going to make it different. So, can you can you remember what it was? I can exactly. To the, I, honest to God, my career came from standing in my garage, looking at a heritage soft tail that I owned, thinking, I hate those bags, and I took the bags off, and then you got the bag carriers. And then it starts from there. And once the bag carriers come off, you realise that you now can see the sprocket, uh, the pulley rather. So now I need to put a pulley cover on there or change the pulley to make it look a bit aesthetically better. Uh, and then it went from there. It literally, there was that one moment I just looked at this thing and thought, I just don't like it. And the first thing that came off were the bags. And the second thing that came off were the running lights. And from there, my first ever custom bike was born, basically. <laughs> And did you did you do that thing that we've had a guest on the show before, and his business basically is decustomizing motorcycles, Harley's, Harley's almost exclusively. What he does, I don't know whether I should say. I'll just leave it at decustomizing. He he buys people's custom bikes, puts them back to stock, and then sells them and gets more for the stock used bike than he would for the custom bike. Yeah, he, that's genius. That is, it, honest to God, that's genius. Yeah, even though... Well, here's the thing. What he... Oh, I shouldn't really be telling all this. What he could do is buy the... But I'm going to... What he, what he could do is buy the parts to bring it back to stock for virtually nothing. You put a pair of Harley-Davidson mufflers, as they would say, exhaust, as we would say, on eBay and see if you can get 20 quid. It's hard. Nobody wants to stock one. They want like a, they want a screaming eagle or a super trap or a Kirker or whatever it is. But when they buy a used motorcycle, they want it to be as stock as possible. And I, and, I, and I did. Why do you think that is? I I I've got an idea. But why do you think people want to buy? Never want to buy a customized bike. They always want to buy a stock bike. Um, first, I, I always found it depends who they're buying a customized bike from. First of all, but if people do like blank canvases. Reason being, it gives them a chance. A, they think it's unmolested, therefore um, there's no poor workmanship, which is actually a problem. There are a number of bikes I've seen over the years, um, including my own, where I've looked at it and thought, oh, God, this is not uh, sort of standard where it should be, and it's not 100% safe. Um, there are other things. People just like 
to be able to have a starting point to go in a the direction they want to go in. And there is a stigma attached. If someone's put on, I'll be honest, it's happened to me. I've got, just bought a, bought a bike for the first time in a couple of years. And it's got some Vance and Heinz pipes on it. And the pipes that are on it are about 450, 500 pounds. But I want black ones. But the problem is I cannot bring myself now to take the pipes off and spend 500 pounds when someone's already done it. So there is a stigma. If you buy a bike that's customized, people have a hard time taking parts off and replacing them with other parts. But people do like a blank canvas. It gives them a way uh, they can go wherever they want to go with it. And it was a peace of mind thing that the bike hasn't been played with. I think, I think that's probably uh, two of the biggest factors. How do you go from having a heritage soft sell, which, which at one time, please don't say it this the wrong way, Nick. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Yeah, <laughs> well, have the heritage soft sell, the Harley Davidson heritage soft sell motorcycle, with its retro styling, but its modern, uh, its modern performance, modernish performance, and its uh, Evolution 1340cc engine was the ride of choice for every minor pop star, soap actor who wanted to be a bad boy. You know, I, as you know, at the time, I was working for a Harley-Davidson magazine here in the UK, and I'd get sent to interview these actors, stroke, singer, stroke, you know, celebrity-type guys, and they would have a heritage soft tail. And chaps, did you ever have chaps? Did you have... Come on, mate. I never, Come I never, on. I never, I, honest to God, I, never had, I did have a pair of black leather jeans, but I never went as far as the chaps. Mate, I, leather, I, I did think about them. Le- I, I'm not going to lie, I thought about them, but I never went that far. Leather jeans are always tricky, aren't they, if you're a Brit? Although... The Rockers, we, you know, I was talking about the cafe races, and we'll come back to that in a second. Um, they all wore leather, leather jeans, and, and no one had a problem with it then. But that let's not get into the crossover between the gay scene and the bike scene. Yeah, listen, no, I, let, I, let's I, not do I, that. I, I bought leather jeans. They were nice leather jeans. I looked ridiculous, but at the same time in my defence was the time that I thought that studded bags and tassels were cool as well. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did yeah, move past that. Here's the thing. Nobody has been cool forever. Nobody. You know, the the, the, um, the composer, Ennio Morricone, passed away very recently. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody remembers um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all the cool stuff that he did. And he did a lot of cool stuff. But I've been, as a project, watching... The greatest films are the 60s, 70s, and 80s as a, as a lockdown project and ticking them off the list when I've seen them. I've seen some terrible, terrible films, particularly the ones from the late 60s where everyone was on drugs and thought they were doing something great. They probably had a fantastic time making those films. They're terrible. Let me tell you something. In the 1980s, Ennio Morricone did some terrible stuff for movies. Real horrible 80s cheese. Everyone's got a shocker or two in their past. Of course they have. You have to move through it. Yeah. So how did you move through liking Heritage Soft Tales? Right, if somebody's got Heritage Soft Tales and listening now, please don't take offence. They've passed through into another realm. I mean, dude, they're classic bikes now. They are classic bikes. You can insure them on a classic policy. That's how old old we are. So how how did you get over Heritage Soft Tales? I wanted, I wanted what I wanted in my head. It was my first ever custom bike. I, 
First thing I wanted was the 240 back end. I'd seen one in America, and it just blew me away. And it was on a, it was on a fat boy. So I thought, you know something, it's the same bait. And when I'd actually got to a point where I didn't want bags and I didn't want running lights and I didn't want the, the, the handlebars or the, wind, the windshield or anything else that went with it, it became a base. Um, it was exactly what I wanted. It was the look, the, the style of bike I wanted in terms of it had the fat forks, I liked the running boards. Everything was how I wanted it in the soft tail look. And it, it literally, that's what it was. It became the base for something that I wanted to move forward to. Uh, it wasn't easy. No one was doing it at the time. Uh, I tried everywhere to get someone to do it for me. And they kept coming back saying, Don't, not really, not for me. So I ended up doing it myself. Uh, and that's how I basically moved away. And then the second Heritage Soft Toilet that I bought, uh, when my lease was up on the first one, and I decided that I, wasn't gonna, I was going to buy it. Basically, I bought it, sold it, and then bought a new one. Um, same thing. It came to my house. They delivered it to me. It went into the garage, and every single thing got ripped off it. And uh, We went again for a different style. It's, um, nothing. I've got nothing against them. I still quite like them. I just... I, I preferred them a bit sleek and a bit slimmer. Basically, I wanted a fat boy. I should have just bought a fat boy. Yeah, I love I love the Harley Davidson. The, the first Harley I ever rode, no, not the first Harley I ever rode. I had a I had a, a Harley back in the day, but when I the, so I was the editor of Scootering magazine. You know that. I'm happy to say that on the radio. <laughs> I still have a soft spot for classic scooters. My brother owns a couple of Lambrettas. They, you know, they are stylish in the same way that. I think somebody who liked the look of the Heritage Softail or likes the look of, I'm trying to think of something retro that everyone everyone thinks is cool, a Mini, a classic Mini. Yeah. Everyone can look at a classic Vespa or Lambretta and think, yeah, that's cool. You don't have to ride them. I'd advise you not to. <laughs> right, because... Not what I've ever done, to be fair. Well, here's, right, Nick, here's the problem for motorcyclists with scooters, with the classic scooters. At some point, you'll forget you're on a scooter, you will lean it over, the boards, the the running boards will ground, they will lift, and this is obviously personal experience, they will lift the front wheel clear of the ground because they will ground out and lift the front wheel off the ground. And all of a sudden, you go from being on a motor vehicle to being on a sledge because the thing just goes, there's no turning to be done past that point. At all. There's no avoiding. You're just, you know, you're going where this thing wants to go. And you will do it because you'll, you'll forget. You'll lead it over and you go. The same way that everyone on a trike crashes a trike because they forget they're on a trike. If the trike is... Yeah, that I can understand. Yeah. If it's a motorcycle trike, if it's got motorbike forks, one wheel at the front, two at the back. I rode a... a I went to the trike shop in South Wales. You, you must know those guys. Yeah, yeah. Or know of those guys. Went to the trike shop. And to ride this trike for a feature, and I was going to ride it for the photographs and this, that, and the other. They had fixed the mirrors from previous experience. They had fixed the rear view mirrors so that they didn't show what was behind you. They showed the wheels at the back, the two wheels at the back. Because they'd said they'd had a bad experience with a journalist who'd wedged one so hard underneath a Land Rover that it lifted two of the Land Rover's wheels off the ground. Can you imagine? He'd wedged it that hard, right? So yeah. what they'd done is they had fixed, with tools, fixed the rear-view mirrors 
so that the thing that you could see in them was two giant air von tires going round and round to remind you that you were on a damn trike and don't go so close to parked cars and don't go so close to the traffic that's coming at you. Because you, you, you just described why I've never actually been on a trike. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what's Do you know what's west of the trike, Nick? Go on. Quad. A quad, but the, oh. but the, this quad that I'm that I'm going to uh, briefly tell you about was built by a trike guy, and he okay. uh, and he said I built it up from a kit, a Swiss that's made in Switzerland. Yeah. He said, but I found out that most of the parts are Westfield. You know Westfield, the kit car company here in yeah, the UK. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. make like a Lotus Seven replica. Yeah, yeah. So I got on it, and my my better half, my partner, who you know well. Um, she unwisely got on with me because I said to her, I need like a, a over-the-shoulder shot of me riding this thing. Could you get on the back? And she's been in, in and on all kinds of things. You know, we've been 200 miles an hour. We've done all, you know that. We've done all yep. kinds of stuff. And she is unflappable most of the time. She was terrified and so was I because this thing, <laughs> this thing, what the guy hadn't really worked out was he'd used all the Westfield stuff, but it was, it was, Half as long as a Westfield, so the steering was the most nervous, the, the most nervous, dangerous sort of. Don't sneeze or you'll end up in that bush. Um, if you're part of the expression, <laughs> it was. And I got back and I, I thought I'm going to talk to this guy, but I'm not going to talk to him like it. Look at all this cool stuff that he's built. But I think he'd strayed into territory that he didn't understand. Four wheel, yeah. four wheels. I bought, I bought a quad. I'm not. I, I don't know why. I saw it online. It was one of these Chinese 250s. I had it delivered to my house. Without exaggeration, I probably took it for between 50 and 70 metres. By the time I realised it wasn't for me, um, I'd made a mistake. <laughs> I, I, rang, I rang the guy in the shop who brought the van down took it to work. Um, and we basically used it as a tool table. Well, um, a pool table. I, I've noticed in here in Manchester, there's a famous musician from this part of town who's just had a rather nasty accident on a quad. So we shouldn't really um, we shouldn't really discuss that too much. But when I looked at what happened, because there was footage of it, I thought, yeah, quads. The, I think road going quads. Quads are great on a farm. If you're in the middle of nowhere and you want to haul some timber up to the shed so that it can weather. There's nothing better than a quad for hooking up to a quad, dragging up there, whatever. Yeah, correct. Yeah. On the street with those tyres and the way that a quad brakes and steers, the ironic thing is I think the people who ride them on the street ride them because they're too nervous. At the end, right, this is just a theory. I, know, I may be wrong, but I don't think I am. They're too nervous to ride a motorbike, right? They, they think they're dangerous. They think they're unstable. They think having four wheels on the floor is safer. I think it's more dangerous. I gotta agree with you. My experience of the quad that I had was it was far more dangerous than any motorbike I'd ever been. <laughs> they don't want to turn. They don't want no, to turn. They they they, un- right. they understeer for four old times. I've got a really quick quad story that I have to I have to tell. We were doing Top Gear Live. Uh, oh, I told this the other week. I'll tell it again very briefly. We were doing Top Gear Live at Silverstone, and I. You would ride into the live arena and Jeremy Clarkson, Quentin, Dodge Vipers, all sorts of crazy stuff. I would ride into my bit on a quad, get in a rally car with Marku Allen, the rally legend. It, well, it wasn't a rally car. It was an ice racing car, Citroen. And they put it on Sherpa van tyres. 
and it would, if you looked at it, it would smoke all for, it was, you know, it, they, they, yeah. they deliberately put bad cheap tyres on this ridiculous car so it would just slide and smoke and all this sort of stuff. So I would ride in and out on this quad bike because they wanted to feature this quad. Somebody was, you know, somebody paid to have this quad featured. So I started doing wheelies on it and popping it up onto one wheel and, you know, doing all... Because in the downtime, I was just practising. And we were doing three days, I got cocky. And I almost killed Quentin Wilson. I came very close to taking him, <laughs> taking him out. And he thought, he thought, and perhaps does to this day, that it was part of the act. Because afterwards he said, that bit where you came straight at me, Steve, pulling a massive wheelie was great. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Quentin was completely out of control at that point. How I managed to get the thing back down and turn, I have no idea. But if you want to think that, great. I can sympathise with that. Definitely sympathise so, with that. Nick, I've got... Here's the thing. Almost anything on a motorbike can be fabricated, can mm-hmm. be can be manufactured, can be made by hand with a, a, a CAD machine or or just on a lathe or just with hand tools. Yeah. What you can't make, the one thing you can't make... And you can make a crankshaft. Alan Milliard, who's been on here a couple of times, makes his own crankshaft. Oh, you can't make a tire. That's the think about it. That's the one thing on a motorbike that the the customizer can't make. So, when you saw that they were making three hundred tires, <laughs> did you think, right? I'm going to build it. People started. It, this is a really convoluted way, uh, and I do apologise to everyone, including myself. When you saw those giant tyres, did you and others start to build bikes around a tyre? Okay, yes. Okay, and funny you should ask me that question because I went to the NEC bike show. Um, It was 2004. I just built and finished my Heritage Softail, which was a bike called Memphis Bell. So I started showing and had won best in show at the European Hog Rally. So I suddenly started to get into stuff. And I'm walking around, racking my brains, what am I going to do next? And I saw a very good friend of mine um, called Graham, who had a stall there. And on his stall, he had a 360 tyre from V-Rubber <laughs> in a weld wheel with a 23-inch up front to match. And the biggest I'd seen at that point, there were two 80s, there were 300s at the back, and there were 21 inches on the front. And I said to him, I've got to have that. How much is it? And he told me, and I literally nearly fell over. But I made a decision in my mind, I'm going to buy it, and I'm going to build a bike around it. Um, I was walking around thinking, what am I going to do with a tyre that is that big? And the Ferrari bike was born. The bike that ended up being Michael Schumacher's and John Todd's um, bike. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, okay, so I ended you're, you're, up... You're just, you're just dropping the names. You're going, the bike I sold to Michael Schumacher and Jean Tuck. <laughs> right, so it you... Because uh, I was... I built, I built the bike based on around Formula 1 car. Because that was the only thing that I could think of that had tyres of that size that would make any sense whatsoever to Can... try and bring some perspective to the lunacy that was on the back. I can't... Re- yeah, it was lunacy, and that, that was going to be my next question. In my head, it was a respectable tyre manufacturer. It was Metzler, I think, who, who started to make those giant tyres. Or was it, you looked at the name and thought, who the hell's made this tyre? Because I remember seeing some, some of the, the biggest ones intended for motorcycles. 
and they were like cut and shut tires. They had they they were made of one one of these rear tires. I'm convinced was actually manufactured from three other tires. Yeah, I did suspect to be fair when I looked at it. It was a company called V Rubber who actually turned out to make some pretty decent tires as it happens. But when you're in a position where someone says to you, "This is the only tire at the moment. This is the only wheel." This is they've done it as a show thing. They've given it to me to, to take out to market. Um, I was a bit worried. Um, the only way that you can fit fit the tire onto the wheel for some position is you had to get split rim. You had to do it in two sections and then bolt the wheel together. It was, you know, God forbid you've got a nail in it. Uh, you're into it's a problem, but it fascinated me when I saw it. It was just like this is so nuts. I didn't even think how it was going to ride. And then when I was driving home and I'd actually parked it with the money, I started thinking about how it was going to ride, and I realised it was probably going to be a horror story. <laughs> uh, I remember the first one that I rode that had a 300 back end on it. The rear tyre just steered the bike. I thought, oh, I thought the front turning these handlebars is having very little effect on the direction of this device. Oh, yeah. What I need to do is it, it, it was almost like dirt bike technique. It was it was almost like use the engine torque to steer the bike, so apply or deapply torque to the back wheel to make it either tuck in or widen its line and all that sort. Am I getting there? You are, but then you take it to a 360 and it's a whole different level. <laughs> Why would I you mean, do it's that? Nick, a whole different level. Nick, you... Right, so here's the thing that's so crazy about about the way that your, your bike-building career went. You went from winning a, a cup at a hog rally, Harley Owners Group, which is generally sort of nice people who've slightly modified their Harley and like to ride around in leather waistcoats with lots of patches on them. Fine, great, have fun, do that. It's a social thing. Hogs, Harley Owners Group's been going, I think, almost from day one. Yeah. And it and it's great, but it's not the Ferrari bike. You, you the, the, the jump that you made from a slightly modified heritage soft tail to the Ferrari bike, was extraordinary. I mean, just just tell people, what, what was in that bike? Run, run through the spec on that bike. Sure. We used the 1340 Harley, Harley Evo engine. The biggest problem we had, we used a Baker six-speed gearbox, which is a right-side-drive gearbox, um, to try and cope with the offset. But the offset for a 300 is one thing. The offset for a 360 is a totally different ballgame. So we ended up having to build, I had a guy, I wasn't fabricating in-house at that time. Um, I had somebody build a frame for me. Um, and it took, a, took six months to get that frame to a point where it actually the engine sat. We could have a belt drive. We could um, make the thing kind of ride in a straight line. And there was dog legs, all sorts of bearings going on, outrigger bearings, you name it. It was going on. Just, and it was, it was literally... Because no one had ever done it before. It was one of those suck it and see situations. And we finally got the frame right. I bought some nice um, solid forks. We made the tank. My favorite part of that entire bike, there were two parts, two things. Inside the petrol tank, we created a dashboard with all different rocker switches and uh, press buttons to start, that kind of stuff. But the exhausts came around you and came up the back of the bike and met in the middle. So they met above the middle of the centre of the tyre at the back of the frame, trying to, again, emulate a Formula 1 car. And it was 
an enormous labour of love. Um, Dare I ask how much it costs to build? No. <laughs> I can ask, but you're not going to tell me. It, it was over £50,000. To build? In 2005. Yeah, wow. It was mega. For, for, for 2005, look, the scene had started, it was on. It had been going a few years. All the TV from America was making it popular. You know, it was... The American bike builders were household names. Everyone had a, an inkling of what was going on. Nick, here's a, um, stat, here's a stat about that, yeah. which you need to know and everybody yeah. else needs to know. The first person to generate $1 billion of sales through Walmart, Jesse James. Not a pop, not a pop star. No. Not a comic book character. Not an actor, not a sports person. The first person to sell $1 billion of merchandise through Walmart, a motorcycle customizer, Jesse James. He was, but he's cool. His brand was cool because he's cool. I know Jesse James. He's a cool individual. He's out there. He doesn't care. Wasn't it, 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 it was funny when he was, when he was getting divorced from Sandra Bullock for his in, <laughs> indiscretion. Uh, the, the, one of the biggest selling newspapers in the UK, I think the, 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 the most read English language news source on the internet, had to print a massive apology because they published a picture of this mansion saying, would Sandra Bullock have to sell her mansion? It was his mansion. He owned it before he met her. Yeah. They had no idea how much money. Uh, well, he was, there was, obviously there was Indian Larry, there's Billy Lane, there was all kinds of people, but Jesse James was the man, wasn't he, in terms of... But Jesse James made money, he was a money-making machine. A lot of the other guys have paid their PR companies inordinate amounts of money to get onto the television, to get known. So their outgoings, believe it or not, I don't know this for a fact, their outgoings to get the fame of fortune were very high. Hold on. So when you offset, when you offset it, but Jesse was just a machine. Hold on. Did you did you not pay me inordinate amounts of money to get on the television? I can't I can't remember, Nick. Did you? Uh, did you? No. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Unfortunately, I don't have inordinate amounts of money. Well, that's it. Uh, I certainly wouldn't be giving it to you if I did. <laughs> no, uh, because you had to spend it. You had to spend it on creating this. Astonishing motorcycle. So, can you remember the first time having poured your heart and soul? And people have no idea how much time it takes to scratch build anything—a car, a bike, whatever it is. If you build it from scratch, the amount of time just take however long you thought it would take, and triple that amount. And 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 same with the money. Yeah, and you're getting there. So, having having done that. Can you remember the first time you ventured out onto the road? That must have been fairly nerve-wracking. How did it ride? Did it ride terrible? It was horrific. <laughs> okay, so I rode it. I'll tell you what I rode. I'll tell you, this is a god's honest. I rode it from my house to a local Harley Davidson dealer the day after it was finished. Um, they had a bike show, and I rode it down there, and it was lit- a mile each way. Yeah. They were at the bottom of my road. At the end of that, it was packaged up and taken down to Saint-Tropez. Actually, it was taken down to Nice, where I collected it for the next show in, in, with the Harley Rally in Saint-Tropez. So my first ride was riding from Nice to Saint-Tropez on the coast road. I remember it well. Um, it took a very long time. 
and I spent most of the time screaming. <laughs> it didn't want to go around corners, and what, halfway through a corner, it would stand itself up. Yeah. <laughs> that was the problem with the 360. You'd get it, you'd get it just right. You'd literally be, if you, if you were following the bike, it was running on the edge of the tyre. So what you're doing is you're only running as far as, far as you can go on your front tyre. That is your limit, not your rear one, because your rear one's on the edge the whole time. And then halfway through the corner, it would stand itself up. Mm. And it'd be clutching, drop it off the throttle, and go again. You get used to it, and you do eventually start to, to learn how to do it. But I remember getting to the hotel, and my dad was riding alongside me, bless him, on a, 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 an electric ride. With all bells and whistles in this big comfy seat. And we pulled up, and he went, how was it? And I said, I don't ever want to get on that thing again. <laughs> Literally, that's enough for me. What, um, what about what about stopping it? Did you did you? I mean, I've seen some front brakes on choppers and thought you're better off having no brake on the front if you if you can get away with it. Because no, like, to be fair, it, it, we, I always use good stuff. I always use expensive brakes and discs and, and calipers because to me, if it doesn't ride, it, it's an ornament. Yeah, but it just Nick. All that does is if you've got like you know. I, what was the Harrison? Harrison Billet was was the, the the caliper of choice here in the UK, wasn't it? That yeah, was I used to when know, you I used saw custom. Up. Yeah, yeah, and and the reason Harrison Billet was the was the caliper of choice was because they did a six piston caliper. I don't think anybody yeah. else did that. It looked yeah. fantastic. It worked really well, but it worked really well with a great tire and a lightweight Mavic wheel and, and you know, Olin's upside-down shock absorbers. Now, <laughs> you you had stopped. solid forks, mate. Do you know why it stopped? Do you know why it stopped? Go on. Because you couldn't actually get fast enough right. for it to become a problem. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. That bike, you just cruise at 70, 75 mile an hour. It was comfortable. In a straight line, it was amazing. Once you started to go into the bends until you got used to it, it was a handful. I... I Gave it to, for the day, to the editor of the Sunday Times motoring section. And I took it down to him and he said, I want to do a feature and I'm going to put it on the front page and I'm going to ride it for a bit. And the amusement I had, I was following him on a V-Rod, and the amusement I had watching him try to navigate corners and the bends where he lived, in the end I stopped and said to him, listen, I'm going to tell you the trick to it. And there was a trick to it. But once you've got used to it, it's simple. But just general riding, horrific. <laughs> I'll tell you what that point saying it's amazing because it wasn't. Well, is your your uh, honesty is refreshing and uh, quite alarming to some people, I, I should imagine. <laughs> but because um, here's the thing, people might think neither you didn't like that bike, I didn't like that bike. I love that bike. You love that bike. What's better on a in your part of town, our, our capital city, yeah. to ride that motorcycle back in the day? Down the King's Road on a Saturday afternoon. You're the king of the world, mate. You're the I king. did. I You're regularly. The yeah, of course you did. Yeah. I took it out before it went to, to the clients. Um, I would take it out and I'd use it to go to the pub on a Saturday night. I mean, that bike had the most incredible paint job. I mean, I've never seen it. a guy called Piers Dale painted it. Yeah, I know Piers. Yeah. Right, and Piers and oh, I. Talented guy. Piers and I made each other. Right, we made each other. We started from my first bike and we went together. For a number of years, he did all my stuff. He is an absolute genius. I mean, there is to me, there's no one better. And the paint job he did on that bike was sensational. 
Piers did an Andy um, Warhol theme crash helmet for me. It had some, it, and it, it, it and still good at crash helmets. Yeah, know, and, it, 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 on yeah. I wanted something. I wanted something different. So he did a. I said to him, "How about?" Because you know, I'm one of the reasons I think me and you are mates is because we both love motorbikes, but we're not just about motorbikes. And I, and I, when I think about my closest friends in motorcycling, none of them are just into motorbikes. There's there's all kinds of other stuff going on. And if people are completely obsessed, if they're monomaniacs and they're just interested in that, um, I'm trying to think of the quote. It's from a famous Caribbean writer, and it's about cricket. And it's I'm I'm going to paraphrase here, but it's something like, what do they know of cricket, those who only cricket know? It's like, how are you going to build an interesting custom bike? Most of the interesting custom bikes I've seen have been inspired by sculpture, art, movies, history, you know, they, they've sort of, somebody said, I was at the zoo and I saw a tiger, or, you know, <laughs> it's because I said, yeah. really? So you'd seen a Ferrari Formula One car, you'd built the bike, but the problem that I foresee instantly, and I'm sure you'll tell us all about it, is you put the the rampant stallion and the badge and the name and you painted it red. Now, surely to goodness, they were straight on the phone. With, no. a, with a cease and desist. No, no that was my plan. That was a, my plan all along was to get a solicitor's letter from Ferrari, uh, which would hopefully pave a path to selling it to them. Yeah, but that doesn't happen. That no, doesn't no. happen. Ferrari are notoriously... When I say no, notorious is the wrong word. They are as keen as any motor manufacturer on protecting oh, that brand. And so right. when some upstart from... Yeah. You're from North London. You're a North London boy, aren't you? I am a North London, yeah. yes. When some upstart North London boy from a famous family, but we're not going to talk about that here. I promised myself that I wouldn't talk about your family. Uh, the family, right. Um, so when you do something like you do, Surely they're straight on the phone saying, you've done a bad thing, let's all go to court, you need to give us that Not bike. a word. So I had a plan B. My plan B was, if they ever did say that and they didn't want it, I'd paint it black. <laughs> and I would give them some money to a charity of their choice to make it go away. But it was never, not once, literally. And it's not like this thing wasn't in every magazine going. It was in the, it was in the American magazine. It was in everything. It was all it over was the place. Everything, right. Put, so it's not I'm, like it was hidden out, hidden out, out of sight. Nothing, not a thing happened. I said to people, just Google Nick Gale Ferrari bike. There's somebody, and probably the first thing that will come up is a picture of you and Jean Tut with that yeah. bike. So well, that, that's you, where it led to. Well, are you telling? Are you honestly telling me, Nick, that when you started to build that bike, you thought I'm going to build this bike and I'm going to sell it to Ferrari? How would you that even? How would you, how would you not even... only that, I even had them paint Michael Schumacher's signature on the tank. So I went. I went the whole hog. <laughs> if you pardon the expression, yeah, but it was, it, yeah, I went. I went. Right. So the bike. So, so the bikes out there. Did you even know Schumacher? Obviously, is a motorcyclist or was a motorcyclist. You know, let's yeah. let's hope yeah. that one day that guy comes back to some sort of uh, yeah. idea of what he was previously. Mm-hmm. And who knows, that, that, that still may happen. But he was a keen motorcyclist. I think he raced in the German superbike. He had a couple of he races did. in German superbikes. So a keen motorcyclist. But what about uh, 
Monsieur Tuck, did you were you aware that the 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 new commendatore, the 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 head man at Ferrari Racing, was a motorcyclist? Did you, did you know that before you started? No, I didn't know. You see, there's a lot of things I didn't know about John Todd beforehand. One of the things I didn't know that was his girlfriend was a Bond girl. Um, and I I had basically on a Sunday afternoon. It was I remember it was a, a, a November Sunday afternoon. It was pouring with rain. Somebody I know rang me and said. Where are you? And I said, I'm just going out to get some lunch. And he said, I'm going to send you an address. Get here now. And I said, why? He said, just get here now. So I went, and it was a film studio in Twickenham. I went there, met him outside. He took me inside. And as I walked in, he said, I'd like to introduce you to Monsieur Todd. Now, obviously, as someone who watched Formula One and was interested in the whole scene, I knew who he was instantly. Um, I was a bit taken aback. He said to me, I understand you have a Ferrari motorcycle, a themed motorcycle. I said, yes, it's in my um, shop. And he said, can I see it? So I had the, the most surreal moment of my life up to that point was getting in a car with John Todd, having his driver following for some reason. And we went to my shop and I showed him the bike and the whole way there, he didn't want to talk to me. And all I kept thinking of is, I'm either going to sell this or get so sued it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we got in. Uh, the picture you're talking about, he'd obviously at that point, he was quite pleased with what he saw. And he said to me, you know, this is you've broken every copyright law under the sun. I said to him, if you want to make it into a big thing, I understand that. I'll paint it black. And his words were, you can't do that. Look at this beautiful paintwork. And it turns out that Jean Todd has a huge collection of Ferraris, a huge collection of motorbikes in his home, uh, and was just basically as an enormous petrol head, and was very pleased with what he saw, and took it from there. To me, I want to buy it, but we need to um, talk about it. I want to buy it for Michael for his retirement for Ferrari. And that's pretty much where the, that story started and ended, uh, going to them. And last I saw, it was in the museum. I I came into your your shop in in North London was very close to an iconic venue for yeah. motorcyclists, the Ace Cafe, mm-hmm. and uh, on a trading estate. You know, on, on it, we, what I, one of the things I liked about your shop was it wasn't like a theme park, like some some bike builders. And the Americans did it because they were going to be on TV, obviously. So they kind of turned their workshop into, like, a, a film set. But your workshop was just a, wor- a workshop. You know, there were no, <laughs> there were no airs and graces. It was the place that we went to earn our money. But I came in one day to see you, because I used to pop around and see you. And um, there were three bikes on benches. One belonged to an English aristocrat. One yeah. belonged to a very fam- a very famous rock star. Yeah. And the other one belonged to a man who is believed to be, by many people, a living God, literally. And I said, how the hell do you end up with these three bikes that belong to these three guys in this scruffy workshop on a trading estate on the, out- on the North down, Circular down, Road? Actually, my friend, a lot of that was down to you. With an introduction to our friend, the aristocrat, who has an enormous um, number of very well-to-do friends, 
and he liked what we did, and we we looked after him. We did all his bikes, and he brought people to us. But the thing the thing was as well, three very what it was point it was going to make three very different bikes, and I think there are some bike builders who who forge a career. Marcus Volts or some, you know, you always yeah. know a Marcus a Volts bike. You always knew, yeah. you always knew an Indian Larry bike. You, you kind of you, you you knew a Roland Sands bike. These guys would build in a style. But, yep. Like I said, those three bikes you had there were incredibly trick. The the, uh, the flat tracker that you had in there, Max's flat tracker, yeah. what a, that's one of my favourite bikes of all time. That was brilliant, that bike. It, so many one-off parts, individually designed, hand-built parts on, on that bike. But there was no style. Do you, do you, looking back, think that you would have done better to establish the Nick Gale style. You you'd kind of almost set you'd almost set it with the Ferrari bike. But, no. but then you kind of spoilt it with the with the WLA with the military bike which which won all kinds of awards, didn't it? Look, I had a very simple philosophy. It was it had to be fun. Okay? For me, building bikes and tinkering with bikes was a privilege. It's you know, it's it's not an easy way to make money but it's not a hard way to make money. And, and the way that people were sweeping bike builders at the time, they were like something special. And I used to say to people in every interview, and I still do now, there's people out there curing people. There's people out there, they're doctors, there's firemen, there's policemen. We, we play with metal every day. It's not special what we do. But for me, it had to be fun. And the fun part was, Coming up with different things every time. Well, the same that bike was not for me. Yeah, so you you threatened to paint the Ferrari bike black. You never did it. It ended up in the in the Ferrari yeah. museum. We think um, the next bike that I'm aware of that you built, the WLA, the, mili- <laughs> the military bike was black. And yeah. like I said, what awards? All it was motorcycle. News is bike of the year or something like that. It was. It just won everything. And and, and the thing about that bike, as as you've just said, was that was a fun bike. That's a fun bike, isn't it? That bike, for me, was something that started off as a real pain in the bum and ended up as an obsession. Um, so it was. Let, let's just Go say. What, let's just tell people what it was. It was a, a Harley Davidson WLA. It was the military bike. WC, that, WC, it was the, it was the C. It was yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people think C stands for civilian. I think it stands, stands yeah, no, for Canadian. Can, it's for Canadian. Yeah. So it's a it's a, a V twin side valve. Um, Seven fifty war bike. Yeah, it's it's yeah. the it's the Liberator. They called it the Liberator because Correct. if you were in occupied Europe, often the very first thing that you would see um, when the Germans were retreating was a GI. On a on a Harley, yeah, <laughs> with, with, you know, the, with the wheels are interchangeable. The front yeah. wheel, and the back wheel. The thing was designed for battlefield repair, and was also designed to basically run with its guts hanging out and never never die. And they are they are for a heavy bike. Those Harleys will go as fast over a ploughed field as they will on the highway. Yeah, they're incredibly <laughs> robust motorcycles. So they what? Are. What made you think that they would? It would make the good basis for a for a show winning custom bike. It didn't. I, I wanted one so desperately that I looked everywhere, and they were expensive. And I didn't want to spend that kind of money on a, something that was just a whim. I still, I'm still running a business. I still had to have my head in the game. Um, I actually found one opposite my aunt's 
place in Devon. Uh, she's no longer with us, but there was a farmer who had one in his shed, and it had a history. And the history was his father had bought it from the GI in 1945. He'd ridden it till it breaks down. They'd left it. He restarted it in 1982. He'd ridden it once, then he decided to customise it. And when I say customise it, I've actually never seen anything quite like it. Um, he painted the entire thing yellow with a brush. <laughs> It oh, I've I, I've right. I bought motorbikes that have been painted with a brush. Right, but <laughs> this had um, a Vincent seat. It had a Suzuki headlight, a Honda petrol tank, Honda wheels. The only thing that was original was the frame, the forks, the engine, the gearbox, and that's what I needed. Yeah, it had a logbook. I bought it for a song. My plan was just to put it back to um, a civilian-style version of the war bike. I stripped it down. Funny enough, I got it home. This was the funny thing. I remember I remember taking it home in the van. It hadn't run since 1982, and this was in 2001. And I took the carb off, cleaned the carb, cleaned the spark plug, put patch in it, and started. Like, third kick. I was so excited, I went to ride to my mate's house, and my mate lived on a hill. On the way there, I think I was thinking, I remember thinking to myself, God, this is quite quick. And I looked in my mirror, and there was a train of traffic going back about 300 meters. <laughs> when I finally got to turn left, I've gone down the hill. My mate's waiting in his drive, waving at me, and I've gone straight past him. When I finally came up, he said to me, why'd you go past me? I said, it doesn't stop. <laughs> it'll, stop on a, it'll stop on the flat, sort of, on a straight, on a hill. Did, did stop. they have, Nick, did they just have a rear wheel brake, no brake on the front? Yeah, they had a front. They have front drums as well. They had a front drum. Right? Yeah, but they're terrible. I mean, like, awful. I rode, I rode the one, and I wonder if it was the inspiration for you buying yours. I rode the one that always used to be in the windows at Wars Harley-Davidson, the oldest Harley dealer in the world outside the States in London. And I rode that one that, that belongs to them. They've had for a long time. And uh, while we were having a cup of tea, it got knocked off the stand. It got Someone backed into it while it was parked up. And it was a very famous British sports... It turned out to be a very famous British sports person. And I won't say who it was, but a lot of people... I remember this, yeah. A lot, of, a lot of people will work out who it was from the thing that I say next. So John War, um, you know, who owned the bike, and like we say, Wars is the oldest Harley dealer. Wars of London is the oldest Harley dealer in the world outside the States. And still there. And uh, John went to remonstrate very strongly with this person... And in his spare time, I think John's a martial arts instructor when he's yeah. So, you know, and, but I restrained John because I remembered that this particular famous British sports person has a father who was doing life imprisonment for murder. <laughs> <laughs> and when I said to John, I said, hey, John, remember his dad's his dad. And he went, oh, yeah, <laughs> like that. And, and the thing was, because it was a military motorbike, so what? It had been knocked off the stand. All it had done is removed a bit of olive green paint. You know, it hadn't, yeah. it hadn't done yeah, any. Yeah. So we thought discretion was the greater part of valour. And, <laughs> and this this very famous sports person had put a massive scratch down the side of his shiny new BMW M3. So yeah. nice. Anyway, that's my Harley Forty Five story. So what did you? So it didn't stop. It didn't steer. It was it was dog slow. What did you do? What did you do next? It was horrible. I mean, I can't even say horrible. It was just beyond. I, I literally put it in my garage. I, just, I stripped everything off of it. I made a big pile of the stuff that, I, that shouldn't have been there. 
I took I used nitromorphs to get the paint off of the frame. I took the engine out and I started amassing bits and I bought some two new old stock 16 inch wheels. And the front one dropped straight into the forks like perfectly. Took two minutes. Went to do the rear one and I hadn't even thought it through. They put an 18 inch rim in the back with a much skinnier tire. And what they used to do is they used to put it, the tire, the wheel in, heat up the frame and when it was red hot they used to spin it up to, to, to lock the nuts down and it would pull the frame in. Right. And that's what they've done. So it wouldn't, there's nothing I could do with it. So I'd already hit my roadblock. I spoke to a guy who I knew who did fabrication. He said to me, no, no, I can fix that. I can, I can remake the, the back end of the frame. Uh, and I took it to him. And you know what these, there are some fabricators out there who are artists, let's call them artists, um, and they take their own sweet time. And I'm not <laughs> How was, very, um, how very diplomatic of you, Nick. Well, it, 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 I'd given up. Your fabricator, your fabricator, Aidy, yeah. the most talented, it one is. of the, what, the most Definitely. talented metal worker working in motorcycles. Because I know a couple of guys who work in cars who are super, super talented. But Aidy, your fabricator, yeah. the best fabricator in the UK working on bikes. Yeah. I've yeah. ever come across, and I have come across some super talented people. Oh, I'm telling you. But he loves rubbish. He lives, uh, we called him Stick of the Thumb. He loves and lives for rubbish. The older the gnarlier, the better for him. And I never saw this bike for 10 years. I'd actually given up on the fact that the guy even had it. I'd lost interest. I'd ten forgotten about years? it. 10 years. Seriously, 10 years. It stayed down there. My dad was going mad at me. You've got a bike down. I said, it's not even a bike. It's a frame. I just lost interest. And then one day I rang the guy. I said to him, have you still got my stuff? And he went, yeah. I said, fine, I'm going to come down and get it. I bought, I went down. I picked up the frame. He hadn't touched it. Testing, uh, 10 years, obviously not enough to do the work. <laughs> uh, what he had done, though, he'd done me a real favor. He'd taken my engine apart, and it was in a big bucket. And you know, you know the old ball bearings that sit in the brace, and the bearings come out when yeah. you take them out of the grease? I just had, everything was in pieces. Like, the engine was in a million pieces. Everything was there, so I bought it back. And I actually said to AD, take photographs of it and stick it on eBay today. I want to see it gone. And he said, I want to do the engine. I said, you're not doing the engine. I want it gone. And 24 hours later, I walked in. And I said to him, what's that? He went, your 45 engine. And it was 70% done. And I looked at it and said to me, can I spend 25 quid and get some gaskets? <laughs> and I looked at this thing and I said to him, what are we going to do when it's done? He said, I'm going to enamel it. And without, you know what the guy's like. Three days later, I'm looking at this 45 engine. And he said to me, he had it, he broke it to the crank. It was all original, numbers matching. had the original grease in there. thing had never been apart. And he kept saying to me, this is the thing of beauty. And by the time we finished with it, it was. And I said to him, we're building the bike. So what we did was we, we cut the metal um, away that we couldn't use on the, the rear of the frame. And we used all that metal. We reshaped it. So we ended up making a drop frame. Had to change it a little bit, unfortunately. But we pretty much put everything that was 45 back on the bike, just in different places, um, to, make it, to make it work. We fabricated the tank in the, in the same style. We had one side with oil, oil one side was petrol. And they clicked together in, um, and they went onto the bike. And we built this bike, and it became an absolute obsession. 
and I couldn't believe how successful it was. I mean, it well, was global. Why? It was an incredibly successful motorcycle in terms of winning awards and shows. Why do you? There's a great picture of you with that bike. I don't think I've ever seen such a big grin. But because I know you, I yeah. think I think the grin is a bit like it's almost like a middle finger to the kind of. Because because here's the thing. No, please please, please, please don't please don't take this the wrong way. You are not like the other custom bike builders that I've met. You're not a biker. You're not covered in tattoos. You haven't got long hair. You don't do all that sort of stuff. You're you, and you're different. But that bike regularly trounced everything it went up against in whatever whatever show. The picture you're talking about was at the NEC. It's still one of my favourites. My dad's standing behind me, and yeah, the grin. That's really why the grin. That was the Carol Nash Best in Britain, as voted for by members of the public. And I went to that show, and I, I turned around and said at the very beginning, I've taken a knife to a gunfight. Yeah. And we stabbed everyone. I love it. But here's the thing, again, why? This is Britain. We are a great motorcycle, motorcycling nation. We still are. And we have created some of, if not the world's greatest motorcycles. This is the country of Vincent, Triumph, Norton, Matchless, AJS, Bruff, Bloody Superior. Why would the British public vote a Harley as their favourite bike? Like they did? That, that bike was charming. It, that's you, that's a, that is charming. a great word to use. That That is a great... It, it was a lot of custom bikes are marmite, aren't they? People either yeah. adore them or hate them. But I've never met anyone who knew of that bike who didn't, who wasn't charmed by it. Like you just said, it looked great. It looked like a lot of fun, and it was. Here's the thing: it was a custom bike that every motorcyclist thought they could ride. Whereas I think a lot of a lot of motorcyclists look at. Jesse James, Billy Lane, the stuff that's been done in, in the UK here by people. Uh, I won't mention the people <laughs> who built some of them. Mainly because I had they, six pages in Hot Bike with that. Six that pages in Hot Bike? Six pages wow. in Hot Bike. Um, yeah. You know why? Because I said the same thing to everybody. I did my very best to not make it a custom. I did my best to be as sympathetic to it as I could. I had what I considered to be a terminally wounded animal. It was never going to be the animal that it, it was once before. So I wanted to make it as sympathetic as I could make it. And I wanted it to look like something that could have come out of the Harley factory. And you know what? Just little bits and pieces. Like they had a swept up exhaust with a clam, clamshell on the end. And they wanted to be, why have you swept the exhaust up? I said, well, you see, because the middle pipe is so knackered. To, to go out and buy one. So all we did was we made a little joining piece, swept it up, and it looked a million dollars back yeah. to back. Um, it was little touches like that. So for me, it, that was it. It was charming. And people realized I'd gone to as much... I'd, I'd put as much effort into I can to be sympathetic and not to turn it into a custom bike. Well, let, let's mention somebody else, and I can't believe that I didn't mention this guy when we were talking about bike builders who became super famous. Russ Mitchell. Obviously, yeah. and I I know Russ ex- Exile Cycles. Yeah. I I know Russ from back in the day when he was a scooter boy. When yeah. I was a scooter boy, back in, I mean I'm talking like you know the the mid to late eighties. Um, Russ very quickly developed his style, the Exile Cycles style, that kind of 
hot rod, like a hot rod, like a two-wheel hot rod. That's probably yeah. the best way to describe it. White wall tyres, lots of matte black, lots of your fire engine red, and, and a very sort of pared-down, simplistic style. You saw an Exile Cycles bike. You knew it was an Exile Cycles bike. The problem with doing that is, as quickly as you come into fashion, you go out of fashion, you're stuck with that style of yeah, bike. Yeah, out of shelf life. Yeah. It's clever. I'm not, listen, when he did um, all the biker build-offs on, uh, on TV, he made, a na- listen, he made a name for himself by, by being true to his design, true to the way he's, he believed the bike should look, and he became a, a big name. So it's very, very clever. Did he ever win one? I'm not sure. I don't think he did. But here's, here's, what, here's what I say to you. How that, that 45 that you built, the WRC, mm. was so popular, it got so much publicity. Was there not a thought in the back of your head, right, this is my style, I'll churn out a lot of bikes that look like this because people love this bike. And how many people tried to buy that bike off you? Sure, loads. Loads. It, it, so, went, it went in the end to one of my, um, one of my very, very valued customers with a, a clause in there that I get first dibs to buy it back. Um, he's still got it. He has no intention of selling it, sadly, because I would like it back. Um, I moved, Listen, I, I found, through that bike, I found what my real love was. And my real love is old bikes. Yeah. Not properly old bikes. Um, I did a, I don't know if you remember that Clino that I did. Yeah, the uh, Clino. Yeah, I remember that. Still got that in my, that's in my hallway. Finished. I love that bike. It's 100 years old next January, January 25th. That's it for this episode of Steve's Speed Shop. Don't forget, it's on every Wednesday and there's a fantastic podcast or you can use the Listen Again feature here on Fab Radio International.